Afzal Hussein. Welcome to the Development by David podcast. This is so overdue. How are you tonight, my friend? I am good, man. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, I think when you reached out is what about two, three months ago. Um, so we're finally making that happen. So thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. For the career-focused listeners who haven't stumbled across you online, you're bloody everywhere, mate. How would you describe who you are today in 2022? Yeah, um, so it's always a weird one when you kind of venture out and do your own thing. You kind of struggle to put a title on your head. Um, but now I would say I am a founder of a startup and a YouTuber who creates content focused around careers and finance. Uh, that's the short one-liner. Um, and I'm sure we'll dig into detail on everything um, throughout the podcast. What I find quite juxtaposed, juxtapositioned is that, um, I can get that word out there, um, what I find quite ju- juxtapositioned is that some people escape a career in finance to become a YouTuber, mm. um, but you promote careers in finance whilst being a YouTuber. Yeah. Do, do you ever have that kind of, in, in, I guess, an in, inner conflict when you kind of marry the two? Yeah, it's a good question. Oftentimes, I've read, I think it was a, there was an article on Bloomberg and the guy was like, oh, um, Afzal, he's gone and created a career on YouTube telling people how to leave the industry and he's not in the industry. <laughs> so it's, for me, look, I, I see working, like if you graduate and you work for an investment bank, you know, it's going to give you a good platform. And that's why I encourage a lot of young people who, you know, come from like an underserved community or, you know, who wouldn't otherwise consider a career in banking or consulting to explore it because it will set you up um, on a good path or trajectory after a few years. So you've got more doors that will open up to you. Um, So yes, as much as I'm not in the industry, I encourage getting into the the industry because it will help you um, with various exit opportunities. Um, and also part of the reason why I do this is because when I was a student there wasn't anyone else doing this kind of thing and so it's kind of like creating what I wish existed when I was a young person. I I love that and I typically hate how escaping the nine-to-five is completely fetishized online because some people from a background like ours who immediately go into a workplace can't afford just to leave and a successful career on youtube requires startup capital requires good equipment technology Mm. softwares and that kind of stuff so we can't just bypass one for the other immediately like doing one alongside the other like you did was probably the best kind of starting point right Yes. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of people who aren't working like a traditional nine to five or let's say a traditional office job, they kind of look down on it. And I don't like that. You know, there's no right or wrong answer for some people working for a big company or a startup or, you know, it's what they want. It's what they're comfortable with. And that's fine. Um, It's easy. Like, it's easy to say, oh, just pick up, leave your job and go and do YouTube. Like, but really and truly, that's a huge risk. Like you need an income coming in coming in you need to have money in the bank you need to have saved you need to be strategic about that decision um for me it got to the point like i always make sure i'm strategic about any career decisions i'm making so i spent three four years at goldman's and at that time i knew i was like 25 26 and it was kind of like all right i'm getting bored of this i know my future isn't in this industry i want to explore entrepreneurship um, and do my own thing um, and i was in a position because i you know i I always thought about doing like something outside of finance. Um, so I was kind of saving up towards that. 
So I was in a position where I could say to myself, all right, I'm going to give myself two years to go and do my own thing. If it works out, great. If it doesn't work out, I will always have a job in the city. If not at Goldman Sachs, at another investment bank. You know, there's hundreds of investment banks, consulting firms. So that was the safety option. Um, so I took that risk. Um, and so far, everything's kind of worked out. And it's been three, four years now. So, yeah. Congrats, my man. I love that. Oh, Let's you. take it back to young Afsal. This podcast follows essentially a roadmap through someone's genesis story. It's mm. the whole mission statement of the podcast. I would love, love, love to hear yours. Yeah, so I grew up in northwest London or central London um, in a council estate in Camden. Um, my mum was a single parent who raised five of us. Uh, you know, a typical story, free school meals, income, support, benefits, all of that. Um, but having said that, I think we had a very privileged upbringing in that everything we want, like we had food on the table. There's a lot of people who don't have food on the table, right? Um, and even if we didn't go to like private schools and all of that, our upbringing, our education was still good. Uh, everything we needed, we had around us. My mom did a great job at raising five of us. Um, and I was always quite motivated and ambitious. And I kind of carried that through school, uh, academia, um, my first year of A-levels, I kind of messed up because I was in the wrong environment. Retook that le that A-level year and then got into uni and then the rest is history, really. Yeah. You said you were in the wrong environment. How important is your inner circle of friends when you're so embryonic in terms of academia and starting mm -hmm. off your career? How much do you think, especially coming from a council estate, how much do you think your peer group influences your outcomes ultimately? Heavily. You, like... Every single one of us, we are a product of our environment, right? Um, and a lot of it comes down from parenting. You know, as a kid, the standards or the rules that your parents set, that's what you're going to abide by. And then when you go to school, you're going to be hanging around with people. If they're the wrong bunch, then you're going to go on the wrong path. Um, growing up in a council estate, obviously, I was in and out the youth club constantly. In the youth club, you get a lot of kids who, you know, are involved in drugs, gangs, all of that. But also, you get a few decent kids as well. Um, fortunately, I've got two older brothers who I kind of learned the ropes. Like, they taught me everything I needed to know about growing up, what's right, what's wrong. Um, so, you know, you see a lot of kids that you grow up with go off on a completely different trajectory and end up in prison or end up some dead etc um or you know doing crazy things and then on the other side you've got kids whose heads are screwed on um so you kind of try and focus on being on the good good side um but you just you know it comes down to knowing what you want from your life your career and then just pursuing that diligently 100 percent. i always think about the whole mantra if you can see it you can be it yeah. was there a specific moment for you where you realized that you could achieve something greater than what you saw in the council estate yeah growing up i always used to so when i was young when i was a young kid i used to have like a vision board right and i used to put like mansions and bugattis fancy cars and all these you know more materialistic things than i would want now for example did um, you put a I, youtube plaque sorry did you put a youtube plaque on it because nah, that came random it came it was unplanned this is the thing all these things are unplanned um, so you, being a YouTuber was never on the list, actually. Um, you know, five, ten years ago, being a YouTuber was no one really knew what that was. Right. So that's a that just happened by chance. Um, so growing up, I thought, all right, 
after I failed my A-level that first year and I kind of left that college and went and fixed up uh, and put my head down and actually focused, I realized that, all right, if you actually put your head down and focus and you play your cards right, you could do whatever you want. So I applied that same principle in uni and then it's kind of like, all right, there's this guy that flopped his first year of A-levels and then he's gone and got like four internships or spring weeks in his first year of uni, which is quite rare to do from like a non-top tier uni. And then I got a Goldman Sachs internship. And at that point, people were like blown away. And I was like, how am I getting an internship at Goldman's? Managed to convert that into a full-time offer. And it just goes back to put your head down, play your cards right, be a bit strategic in your approach, and then you could do what you want. If you reflect on your internship at Goldman's, you're kind of first foray into an elite institution like that. Did you... Mm-hmm. Can you remember whether you presented your background and your true self there or you felt that you had to be almost like a chameleon and adapt to the kind of corporate culture and the culture capital that you saw around you? Yeah, good question. Um, first off, I don't see anyone in at Goldman from a similar background to me in the front office anyway. So the front office is like where the more higher paid roles are, the more sexy roles and where the most competitive internships are so I was there didn't see anyone from a similar background my background didn't come up much but I would never shy away from talking about it whether I was catching up with someone and they asked you know tell me about yourself I would tell them my background um, because I'm proud of my background right I don't hold back Um, however I can't lie when you are like when I went into interviews and when I did go and work on the desk I, I wouldn't say I completely changed my persona and put on an accent and any of that but I did cut down my like you know day to day I would I might use more slang or or I might be more informal or have a few traits that will be comfortable or more recognized in you know the estate that I grew up in so I had to tone those down and be a bit more professional in the working environment but nowadays I think you know there's a lot of uh, encouragement behind bringing your true self into the world of work and so that's very powerful in hindsight, I would have totally wanted to just completely be myself. But I don't know how much people will respect that um, at these elite institutions. Yeah, I think the greatest superpower is embracing your weirdness. And I'm not calling our backgrounds weird, of course, but I, I think it's just a catchy title because it's literally the only duty that you can fulfill that no one else can. Yeah, And it doesn't only dampen some of the productivity and efficient efficiency values that you can bring to work it actually creates a mental health dilemma almost within yourself and what i mean by that is because if you wear a facade if you wear a persona mm. then when you are complimented for what you present at work you don't receive that it's the persona or yeah. the ego that receives that but if you act as your true self and someone truly compliments you whether it's a tray or a piece of work then you feel that and if you turn up I guess, not presenting the weird idiosyncrasies that you have, you will never feel that love from colleagues and friends and just the wider world if you don't present your weirdness almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's tricky for people though when you look around and you see no one like you or you look at your seniors and they're all, or, you know, your colleagues, they can just, they talk about similar topics that you haven't got a clue about. So if, you know, your colleagues are talking about golf or rugby, whatever it might be, and you're there, you kind of grew up playing football in the cages. It's kind of different. Um, but <laughs> now more and more attention is being put on that. So it's 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 only a good thing. And, mate, you're the front runner of it. Like, you're, some of your videos are 
have the word council estate on it, or it's like council estate takes Golden Sachs, something like that. And yeah. I, I just think, was that kind of your motivation for the channel? It's like showing that people from our background can achieve a career in these industries and then here are the skills that got you um, yeah. to that point. Yeah, so a lot of the videos and a lot of the content I'm making now more than ever is for a young me, basically, 18-year-old <laughs> Um because that's powerful. You don't, like, when you're creating content or anything you're doing, whether it's entrepreneurship, creating content online, if you're trying to create for everyone, you're going to miss everyone. You're not going to hit everyone. You need to go niche, right? So I focus on creating content for the young me. Um, and it's to show, because I know there's hundreds of thousands of young people from underserved communities growing up in working class backgrounds that haven't got a clue on how to break into these industries. And so I'm trying to kind of show them that, yo, this is possible. These are the ways to do it. I've done it. You can do it. Only thing is, obviously, I'm not in the industry. So it's kind of like they can they might say, oh, but you're not in the industry anymore. You know, I it's a double edged sword because oftentimes when you're working for a big investment bank, they'll be very restrictive on what they let you do. So you won't likely be allowed to create a YouTube channel or if you are, you it needs to get checked by 10 different levels of sign off <laughs> and then they're very controlling on what you can put out there um, because they need to manage that reputational risk. So it's really tricky. Um, but the beauty of doing my own thing is, you know, there's no one that I need to get sign off from uh, to do it. And your content's amazing and we thank you for not having any sort of creative restrictions because it's brilliant, mate. No, You've grown the channel exponentially even since I was first introduced to your work. You, I think your channel has maybe like 15 times the population of my hometown. Like you have like a small country. Like how did it scale? Why do you think it catalyzed? Yeah, yeah uh, so right now we're on... I personally, I think the channel can grow a lot faster. It's not growing anywhere as fast as I'd like it to. Obviously, it's got hundred and over 100,000 subscribers, which is a huge <laughs> number. It's great. But we all start with zero, right? So it's been three years. The key to it, honestly, is just consistency, right? So for the last three years, I've put out a video or two every single week. Uh, I've maybe missed one week. But consistency and kind of listening to the audience in the comments people will say what they want you to create content on and then you just jot that down add a video on it create a video later on so consistency but most importantly i think it's adding value right the only reason people watch is because you have something meaningful to say and the internet youtube allows you to add value at scale um so it's super powerful yeah it is mate and i'm just so glad that you've enjoyed that growth and hopefully this podcast has something uh of, of the same um given that you had left your role what has been the biggest payoff either financially or emotionally uh since mm. that honestly when, when, when did you know you it was like an aha moment this is why i did what i did yeah so i was at goldman for about three and a half years after i did two years i knew that all right i need to plan an exit strategy i knew a simple question after you do two years in any industry ask yourself look at your seniors and ask yourself, you know, is this what you want to do for the rest of your life? Because that's the trajectory you're heading on. If the answer is no, then you've got to step back and ask yourself what's the best next step for you to take in your career. For me, I've always been interested in entrepreneurship. I never really planned to be like a YouTuber. The, the idea behind YouTube was, all right, I've got all this knowledge here on how to break into this industry. And there's all these young adults, 
you know, on the journey who come from a similar background to me, who no one is helping break into these industries. I'm just going to share one video every single week without any expectations and see what happens. And I said, I'm going to do that for one full year. I did that. And then by the end of that year, I had like 30,000 subscribers. <laughs> so it blew my mind. It was random. Um, but back to your question, I, I told myself, all right, I've done two years at Goldman. I need to plan an exit strategy. So I was just, I was living at home with my mum at the time. I was saving up, you know, when you live at home, you can live within your means. You don't, you're not spending too much. Um, so, and you're earning a decent salary. You can save all of that. Um, and so I planned and I planned and it took me a year and a half to get to the point where I was ready to leave the industry. So I was like, all right, I'm going to give myself two years to do my own thing. Um, and at the time I had like a career consulting business called CV Doctor where I was consulting people like this. Um, and that was taking off as well on the side. So I had proof of concept to leave Goldman's. Um, and then I just left and then it, that was it. Like a first year was steady. Second year, everything grew a bit faster. Third year, fourth year, everything's been running fine. Um, and yeah, man. So it's like, it's been a mad journey, um, but can't complain, can't complain. It's one to be so proud of, mate. When you handed in your notice or um, the notification that you were leaving work at Goldman, what, how did you feel? Did it feel like immediate stress, like, oh my God, I need to figure it all out now? Or was it like, oh, finally liberated, can pursue my dreams? How did I'll you feel? Honest, I was checked out about six months before leaving. I was fully checked out. I, I, shouldn't, I probably shouldn't say this, but it got to the point where I kind of dreaded going into work. I was like, um, it, it was the decision to leave was one that was the scariest thing. Like, like the, the whole decision to leave that industry and do my own thing was the scariest thing um, I've ever done. But at the same time, it was the most exciting thing. It's honest <laughs> to God, it's the most weird feeling ever to be the most scared, but the most excited at the same time. Um, so once it happened, it, honestly, I, there was no shock. There was no it wasn't liberating, it wasn't shocking, because I kind of internalized for the last year, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be financially in hardship for that year because I've got it all figured out. I planned my, it was very, very well planned. Um, and I knew I can survive for the next two years. And if everything doesn't work, I'll just go back into the city. That was it. So I created a solid safety net um, and just went with it. And I think that's the argument for doing it the way you have done it. Go try the nine to five, try the office world first before you consider going to YouTube because you've created those networks, you've created experience, you've created reputation that you can lean on if it doesn't work out. But if you did it in reverse and you started YouTube first, it's so much harder to break into the industry agreed. if YouTube didn't work out, right? Agreed, agreed. And also, I think, you know, I had an unfair advantage. I had Goldman Sachs on my CV, right? So that's a big stamp of approval. So it makes it easier to go and get into the next investment bank, for example. Um, if I was giving advice to students, I would say, yeah, tr when you're in uni or if you're doing an apprentice, you know, try and get the best job possible and then do your YouTube or content creating on the side. When you see traction, then you will see it as a sign to potentially leave your nine to five. Otherwise, as you say, the other way is very, it's a lot more riskier. I have seen a graph, and I can't remember where I saw it, but it was showing the proportion of applications to the top most elite firms in comparison to mid and lower tier. And since the beginning of the pandemic, the applications at the top tier firms has like 
like doubled if not trebled i'm trying to work out why that is and i think it's because of the working from home model because even if you went to a middle and low tier firm especially if you're from a disadvantaged background you fulfill a lot of desires by just wearing a suit going into an office and feeling important but because we're working from home we don't get that sensation anymore so Mm. the best way that we can replicate that sensation is by tagging a name to us and I think that's why those more elite institutions have had an influx in applications from the lower uh, economic background. Mm-mm-mm. It makes sense. Personally, I'm not entirely sure why. Um, I th- it's weird because I think the elite institutions have always had lots of applications. It's been extremely competitive. Now more than ever, maybe you know the awareness has risen because of the internet. Everyone's at home consuming a lot more content yeah they're being marketed to a bit more um but i'm not entirely sure why that is oh yeah perhaps or because we don't need to work in like the city center anymore we don't need to work in the city to work for these places because we can work from home perhaps they're getting more talent from scotland from wales from the regions perhaps true 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 um but i do think there's going to be a big move back into the office like a lot of these banks they're very you know traditional they don't want you working from home they'd rather you know some are you know open to the hybrid model um but some they just want you in the office it's a facetime culture uh, old school kind of thing um i don't know there's no right or wrong to be fair my favorite thing that you've said so far is that um litmus test where you say look at your bosses look at your elders yeah. are you happy with their job do you because that's going to be you ultimately in 10 years are you happy with that and i think working from home has opened that up majorly because you don't just see like their day job you see their home how they're managing stress and i think perhaps that test has become way more used since we started working from home yeah yeah it goes back to it's the whole regret minimization framework and jeff bezos talks about this right so this was basically it makes every single tough decision an easy decision for me (laughs) at the time it's like all right when i'm 80 am i going to regret not leaving the industry and doing my own thing the answer was yes if the answer is yes i'm going to go ahead and do it because i don't want to look back with regret and keep in mind i was 25 26 you know life's responsibilities are nowhere near what they're going to be at 35 36 plus compared to when you're 25 26 so it's better to make these decisions and easier when you're younger as opposed to waiting until you become like a senior person at a company because then it's very hard to leave you're getting paid a lot more so you're kind of locked in a bit more um so yeah first five ten years best time to take that career risk i love it i want to speak about financial literacy and i'll be the first to admit I work in this multinational within the financial services industry and even my financial literacy is so poor. I've actually learned so much from consuming your content, mate. Um, And it just shows why it's so necessary. Mm. Um, That being said, have you noticed a parallel between people who work in these industries and not having a suitable financial um, knowledge and uh, kind of skill set yeah i think when people think of individuals who work for an investment bank for example they immediately assume this person's finances are perfect they know everything about all the financial products that exist they are on top of everything the truth couldn't be further from you know the reality like it's financial literacy isn't taught in school it isn't taught on the job um you know a handful of these people will have their heads screwed on they'll know how to you know 
uh, access various financial products, do some trading, invest in some cryptos, etc., etc. But the majority of individuals are somewhat clueless. They don't know because they haven't been taught it. And when you're working in these institutions, it can be embarrassing to ask people about these things because you think they might judge you for not knowing. So when I was a junior in these organizations, I was I didn't have a clue how to kind of, you know, invest in various stocks and shares, etc., etc. And also when you work for these companies, there's lots of layers of rules on what you can and can't invest in. So I just kept my mouth shut. I didn't ask anyone. I was like, you know what, I don't want to, I'm coming from, you know, a council estate. I don't want to embarrass myself anymore. I don't want to waste these people's time. So I'm just going to shut up and not ask these questions. So you'd be surprised. Not everyone knows everything that you think they might know. That being said, how would you advise just the, like the average salary worker to yeah. save their money? What should they, they do when they receive their paycheck as a bare minimum? Yeah, I think, look, the first thing I would say is if you can just avoid credit card debt as much as you as much as possible to the extent where it's not where, where you're not relying on your monthly where you're not relying on living paycheck to paycheck so what i mean by that obviously you want to have a credit card and build up your credit score that's important when you want to you know buy a house or whatever it might be you you need a good credit score however if you take out a credit card loan and then you're spending all of your typical consumption uh, expenditure um, on money that you haven't earned yet so you're spending on credit so when at the end of the month your salary comes in all of that is going to go towards paying off that credit card debt right so then you need your next month salary to come in in order to survive and then then you're on a cycle right There's, it's a never-ending cycle you are literally working paycheck to paycheck so avoid taking out credit card debt and spending too much that so, such that it means you're on a um, paycheck to paycheck lifestyle um, what you want to do is understand how much is coming in kind of in the early years live within your means so have a budget know what you are expected to spend on whether it's rent food travel those are the biggest expenses right um, but as soon as your salary comes in you know a third of it is going to go on taxes and national national insurance you want to save as much as you can. For me, it was easy because I was living at home with my mum, right? So I could easily save north of 50% of my salary. Um, you'll be surprised. I think the average person in the UK saves less than 10% of their monthly income. So if you can save 20% of your monthly income, you're ahead of most people. Um, so your salary comes in, it gets taxed. You want to save 20%. The rest of it, you know, put it towards either your consumption for the month. And then if you have any money left over, consider investing, um, opening a stocks and shares portfolio or investing in, you know, a small portion on cryptocurrencies, if that's something you're interested in. If you want to save up for a deposit on a mortgage, make sure you have a pot for that. So it's just splitting your monthly income up into savings, consumption, investing. Simple. It's not that hard, honestly. And there's probably like loads of content, including yours online. There's probably templates online on Excel, things like that. Um, I can't imagine it's too hard to access some of these um, resources. Yeah. I should I should create one to be fair, <laughs> um, <laughs> put it out there as a free download because these questions or these thoughts scare people. People don't know how to budget. Uh, people don't know how they should be thinking about their money. Um, but it really is you got to pay yourself first by saving as much as you can, and then putting money towards investing and then paying off your uh, monthly consumption needs. I, I think budgeting is a great tool, and I think 
maybe people who don't have one are completely aware of what they are. I think they completely know what a budget is, but I think they're too scared to do one because mm. it almost shines a mirror on themselves because they'll realise it'll be like almost like a hard truth of what they spend on coffee per month or what they spend on energy right. drinks. You're so right. A lot of people are scared to do that because when the reality hits them, it's going to be shocking, right? If you realise you can't save 5% of your income every month because you're spending on so much crap, it's a scary realisation, right? And then you compound that for 12 months a year and then that's five years straight, 10 years, it adds up. And then you wonder why your savings aren't large or your investment portfolio is small. Um, yeah. 100%. I wonder how many people think, oh, I don't know why I'm not saving this much. I've not bought anything material this month. But it's probably the small coffees like that have a compound interest. Absolutely. I'm scared to admit it. My coffee consumption is through the roof. I probably would have eight houses in my portfolio. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be living with my dad if, if I didn't drink yeah, coffee. <laughs> For me, I swear, yeah, maybe, like, I grew up so in a um, Bangladeshi household, right? We're always taught, save, you know, understand the value of money. You work hard for this money, don't waste it, right? So I've always kind of, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm tight or cheap or anything like that, but I'm very frugal. I know where all my money goes. Every penny, I know where it's going. I know how it's coming in, <laughs> right? Um, and I'm very frugal. But one thing I can't do is go and spend £4 on a coffee at Starbucks. You know, I, to do that every single day, like I've got an espresso machine at home. I'd rather do that instead of going and spending four pounds on a Starbucks coffee because it adds up. And personally, once or twice here or there, it's nice to have. But I just feel like now nah, I'm getting robbed. Like, you know, I, I just I hate getting robbed for my hard earned money. So four pounds on a Starbucks isn't me, man. Yeah. And I wonder how much of these things become less of a treat and more of a habit. Like for me, I know. And I'll put my hands up. When I go into the office now, I walk past Starbucks, so I always just get one. I never yeah. walk past it without getting one, mate. And yeah. I might already have had a coffee that day. I might be per- I might be perked up in fine because I had a good night's sleep, but I'll still get one just out of habit. So it's probably a good test for people to think, what are things that you spend mon- money on every single day? And yeah. just do, an, as it called, like the negative test, where you take it out of your life for a small period of time to see how much it means to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably yeah. a useful thing to do in terms of budgeting. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I think also a lot of people, like when you're a kid or a student, you're not earning money, right? So these options, you're not going to be able to go and buy a coffee at Starbucks. But the minute you start working, you're earning a nice salary. You're like, you know what? I earned this. Let me treat myself. So you 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 tell yourself it's okay. And that's completely fine. Um, but don't complain at the end of the year that you, you wish you had more savings if you're consumer choice or spending decisions have been poor or you know could have been better yeah i wonder how many people's expenditure rises as their income increases as well everyone's everyone's most people's people's, most people's sorry carry on so do you think working a nine to five will make you rich then uh honestly yeah i think what so if I, uh, when I graduated and joined Goldman's, right, so as a, as a um, analyst, you earn a base salary of 50K. And the average UK salary is 30K or around that. Um, and I told myself, like, I, I could get by on staying on 50K for the rest of my life 
so that people want to go from you know 30 20k to 25 30 50 and we want it to keep going up and that's great the more you work the more senior you get the more you could get paid but i told myself you know after i graduate i want to be able to get by on 30k for the rest of my life you know as time goes on you need a bit more right so let's say 50k for the rest of my life but what most ha what happens with most people when it's normal is lifestyle inflation right the more you earn the more you want to spend you buy that fancy car you upgrade your house you rent a fancier place etc etc so then yes for most people especially in the city because people is keeping up with the joneses right um people are trying to when they get promoted they treat themselves more they buy a nice bigger house and it just goes on and on and so the more you earn the more you spend and then you can't afford to leave that job or you can't afford to downsize um so personally i try to live within my means um and spend well below what i make so if working a nine to five won't make you rich how could you increase your wealth without just earning more of a salary before i answer that so i kind of didn't even answer your previous question about what would a 95 make you rich sorry i went off on a tangent um to answer your question would a 95 make you rich simple answer is if you get to any industry right at the top you know even if it's doing a 95 you can be extremely wealthy right you can be the ceo of a company and earn millions you could be a director or a vp and earn a very substantial sum of money so rich is a very personal term you could be rich earning 30k and you know your annual expenses being 10k you're essentially rich right you have financial freedom or you have all your costs covered nine to five can make you rich it depends on what rich means for you now sorry the second question that you asked what was that sorry without relying on a nine to five how else can you get rich ah right right so in this day and age you've got the internet right and so it's a hundred times easier to make money online for example than it was 10 20 years ago um i think you know i'm in the creator economy uh and i'm also doing entrepreneurship right so there's two different routes the creator economy allows you to monetize specialized knowledge so if you have unique insights or specialized knowledge that lots of people or the masses want in my case it's you know breaking into these industries career success all of that if you can you know share that online with an audience build that audience you can monetize that one way of monetizing that is through youtube for example advertisers sponsors etc but then you can easily create a digital product and then sell that or you know courses online courses and then people who want to learn the stuff that you're sharing will purchase that if you do that at scale you know you can make a lot of money the other route under entrepreneurship is you know you build a business and you know five ten years down the line you get acquired by a bigger company company or an incumbent in that industry and they might buy you for a couple to a hundred million dollars plus or you know if you hit it big like all these big tech startups you go an ipo 10 20 years or 10 15 years down the line initial public offering you make a you know a shitload of money and then you get rich like that I can't wait to see that moment where you um, do that with Simply. Oh, um, so, dream. If you were to look at my podcast, right? I've got a podcast. It's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. I've got a bit of an audience. I want to monetize yeah. it. What advice would you give me? Yeah. So your, I would say your niche is development, right? Leadership, development, kind of personal growth, self-help, right? So a lot of people that are watching your or listening to your podcasts are going to be interested in those things. So 
I'm personally, obviously, I'm in the video creation YouTube space. I don't know too much about how monetization works in the podcast space, but you could easily create a digital product or create a course on, like, you know how to set up a podcast, for example, and how to run a podcast. You can create a course um, or a cheat sheet or a book on how to create a podcast because people that listen to your podcast might want to create a podcast. And so you can monetize that. Similarly, you could create your own leadership academy or leadership development course and then have people subscribe or pay to be enrolled on that. And then your teachers on your course could be some of the guests who participated in your podcast previously. So there's lots of different ways. I think the best thing to do, the best first step is to kind of test the idea. So when you have an idea, you would reach out to your audience and ask them, yo, I'm thinking of doing this. Would you be interested? So you test the waters and see how much demand there is going to be. Um, if you see that, all right, there's 50 people who are interested, then, you know, you know, you've got something to run with. Um, you could do like a pre-sale at a discount. So then 25 people might sign up and then, you know, you've made some, you've tested the idea and it works. And then you just go from there. I'm just this is just random brainstorming but that's what i would do yeah mate i can't wait to re-replay this podcast and get my notepad out and just write word for word everything that you just said is in terms of a strategy <laughs> but people might be looking at you and they might be looking at me and be like oh it's good for afzal he's got youtube he, he like yeah. he, he's already built a platform it might be good for david he's already got a podcast but the thing is yeah. everybody could do this everyone has a skill or a hobby or a story that they can monetize. Every person, they will, if someone fishes down the lock or down the lake, and to use the English term, yeah. um, but, and knows how to, I don't even know any fisher, fishing terminology, but knows how to tie the perfect knot or yeah. have this, the best bait for a certain type of fish, there will be someone who is interested in learning just that. And yeah. I think every single person has a, a kind of unique thing that makes them them that they can monetize. Agreed. However, so there is a niche for everything. However, most people just aren't interested. Like people fall into two, three buckets. The first bucket is people like us. We're interested in doing it. So we pursue it and it either works or it doesn't. Right. Or we stick at it long enough so, so that it works or we don't. The other group of individuals are just not interested. They see people creating content online, you know, doing an alternative career from a nine to five and they think good for them. But that's not for me. And that's completely fine. The other group, they want to do it, but they're just not confident enough or they don't want to risk putting themselves out there because they're scared of being judged and all these other factors, which is completely normal. Um, and it's it's not easy to do, um, but agreed, there is a niche out there for everyone and everyone has a story that if you stick to putting out there long enough, it will resonate with an audience and then you could grow from there. I love it. Does money make you happy? Yeah, good question. This is, so money is very important because, you know, we all need money, right? But um, there's research that says how once you hit, I think, 70, 80K annual income, the additional or the marginal happiness from each additional pound or dollar reduces. So there's only so much money that you can make that will make you happy. Obviously, you know, I, I, I enjoy making money. I like the process of making money, actually. And, you know, having more money opens up more freedom for yourself. So uh, money does make me happy. However, it's not the be all and end all. Um, it just I see money as the more money I have, the more I can live life on my own terms. Um, and I would love to just, you know, have enough money where I don't need to worry about or have my family worry about, you know, working on things that they don't want to do or spending time how they don't want to spend it.
I love that. One of the best quotes that I've heard from a podcast guest was, the dream life isn't about having no problems. It's about having problems that you want to solve. And I think money enables ha- like money enables you to choose what type of problems that you want to solve. Exactly. Whereas if you don't have money, you're at the mercy of the people who want their problems solved. Exactly, exactly. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, you've put it, I can't put it be- better than that. Um, agreed, man. I love it. Let's go into careers readiness because that's probably why people have maybe clicked onto this um, sure. if they know you already. You give such amazing insights and roadmaps into financial services. So what's the typical kind of route to entry into an investment bank or into Goldman Sachs? Like what is a typical route to entry? Yeah, typical route is you go to uni, you do a spring internship, which is a one week internship in your first year uh, and then a 10 week internship in your second year and then you convert that into a graduate scheme. Nowadays, there's more apprenticeships. So these banks are doing um, opportunities or doing programs for those who don't want to go to university. Um, so that's an alternative route for 16 to 18 year olds uh, to, to join an apprenticeship. And it seems like the catalyst or the, the key to get past the gatekeepers, a CV. What is a CV and what does the gold standard look like? Given that you're the CV doctor with the, the <laughs> CV PhD, <laughs> no, fair, fair. So a CV essentially, uh, or especially when applying to an investment bank, you it, as a student, it's a one page document that lists why they should give you this offer for an internship. And it basically lists out your grades and your previous experience. And it highlights, you know, why you would make a good candidate on that program. Um, so the different experiences on your CV, we'll talk about what, what skills you learned, what results you achieved. Um, and tell the employer a bit about you in terms of your interests and hobbies. Given that you've probably seen quite a lot of CVs, what's the worst CV that you've seen? Well, what's a t- what's a typical bad CV? I don't want you to name and shame the person, of course. <laughs> no, no, I want, I want. Bad CVs, common, very, very common, more common than you would think. And they usually have the same mistakes, spelling mistakes, grammatical errors, and poor layout. So they just don't look nice to read. When you're thinking about applying to a big corporate, right, you need to understand that attention to detail and presentability are extremely important. So if you can't present a nice looking CV, then I'm not going to hire you or invite you for an interview. Your CV is going to get thrown in the bin because, you know, you're just showing us that you don't have the skills required to work in this company, for example. I want to talk about the archetype of what an investment banker looks like or the archetype of an analyst uh, IB firm. People yeah. see the kind of flashy, I don't know, the flashy TikToks of what an IB analyst may look like. It may be the Rolex on the, the on the wrist or the, yeah. the kind of exciting footage of them trading. But there seems to be quite a work-life balance consideration. It seems like mm. quite a fast-paced job where you give quite a lot, quite up, give up quite a lot of your time for quite a lot yeah. of money, a really yeah. good salary. What does the day in the life of a analyst and investment banking firm look like? Yeah, so it's important to understand within an investment bank, there's so many different divisions, right? You've got the investment banking division who are doing like 16 plus hour days. They work really long hours. They get the biggest bonuses. You've got people on the trading floor. Um, so they're getting in early mornings and they are looking at six screens and you know following the financial markets you've got people in asset management they have a better work-life balance than the other two 
but as a result, their bonuses aren't going to be as huge. So there's different roles within the investment bank, right? And then you've got the back office, which is like human resources, technology, uh, accounting or audit, legal, so on and so forth. So they then they are the non-revenue generating areas. Uh, typically, if you're an analyst, you know, in the front office, uh, let's say you are going to be working anywhere in your first two years, anywhere from 12 to 16 hours a day. Um, it seems really long, but the work that you do actually keeps you quite busy. Um, and it's not like, like I've worked in retail and you're standing there and you're counting the hours go by and it's just hard to do. <laughs> Whereas when you're working on things that are quite engaging, um, that the time kind of just flies by. Um, but don't get me wrong. When you see these TikToks glorifying the role of working for an investment bank, understand that when you join as an analyst, you are at the bottom of the food chain, right? It's not as glorious as people make it look. <laughs> You're literally going to be working on PowerPoint and Excel for 12 plus hours a day. You do earn a lot of money. You, you know, get to work at a fancy organization, see lots of nice boardrooms and meeting rooms and all of that and work with smart, wealthy, successful people. But you're at the bottom of the food chain in that environment and you're slugging away for 12 to 16 hours. Um, and that's why you're getting paid handsomely. What other graduate schemes have you seen out there that um, reward quite well? I think for work-life balance, like you can't have short hours and high pay. It just don't work like that. Um, you know, it, it don't work like that for traditional careers. You can have that if you leave a traditional career and, you know, are extremely successful in, I don't know, content creation, for example. But even then, you need to put in work. Um, nothing comes easy. However, careers that have good work-life balance and have above average uh, salaries, consulting, um, you know, uh, yeah, consulting. I think law, investment banking, strategy consulting, those are quite on the longer hour side and they pay well. Um, other careers, accounting, I think it's good work-life balance, but it's average salary. But consulting, I think, is decent. I, I can't... I can't advise too much on other careers because I haven't worked in those careers. Um, but you can't, you have to choose. Do you want work-life balance or do you want more money? That's the trade -off. Yeah. And for people who know me, I work in consulting. and There you go. There's usually a smile on my face when I'm on a podcast. So the work-life balance is all right. It's yeah. all right. I want to debunk terms. What is asset management? Yeah, so asset management is essentially managing money for large institutions and governments. Um, basically investing that money on behalf of clients so that you can get a return over a given time period. And how does that differ to wealth management? Wealth management is more for individuals uh, as opposed to governments and corporations. But wealth management is a more holistic approach. So you're not just investing money for an individual. You're looking at their whole uh, portfolio of wealth. So you're managing their real estate portfolio. You are tax planning you are planning on how best they could um, give inheritance to their next generation when they pass away so wealth management is a more holistic approach where you're planning for someone's broader wealth as opposed to just investing in the markets does that differ to family offices so family offices and private banking are actually very similar kind of the same thing you're you're just focusing on the financial investing side of um, and an individual's investments, whereas wealth management, you're focusing on everything, tax planning, real estate planning, etc. 
um, family offices and private banking are just for rich families or rich individuals and you're investing their money. That's what is a hedge fund? Yeah, so a hedge fund is basically typically a small financial institution that is not as regulated as the big financial institutions. Um, and they basically take money on behalf of their wealthy clients and invest it in the financial markets. Now they bet on both directions of the market. So they might bet on a stock going down in value as well as a stock going up in value. Um, but traditionally, a hedge, fund, hedge funds have been known to be extremely risky. So they take crazy risk regardless of the market cycle and they either profit heavily or they get really hurt. They get hurt bad. Um, and so they either make a lot of money or lose a lot of money. Um, yeah. This is why you have over 100,000 subscribers. I almost quizzed you there and you just like went off the tongue. Like so succinct answers. I love it. It sounds like... Uh, yeah. <laughs> no practice, no practice. Um, the terms I outlaid there seem tailored and pivoted towards the high net worth and ultra high net worth. What are some of the products mm. and I guess terms that are kind of tailored towards the kind of retail um, customers like ISAs, funds, that kind of stuff? Yeah, so uh, it's a good point you mentioned. Essentially, if we step back, when me and you walk on the high street, we've got all these retail banks, right? We've got HSBC, we've got Santander, Barclays. All of these banks are serving us. We are their clients, the everyday person, right? When you think of investment banks and high finance and all of you know the big institutional banks or the big investment banks, they are basically doing the same thing, but their client base is different. So their clients are large corporations and governments. And so when you're dealing and rich people, high net worth individuals. So when you're dealing with a lot more money, you can offer a larger suite of products and access to the financial markets. That's the key difference between the two. Um, in terms of products for the everyday person, so an ISA is an individual savings account. It's basically, it, I think the limit in the UK right now this year is £20,000. So you could put £20,000 into an ISA, an in, individual savings account, and then you won't get taxed on the interest that you earn. Um, so it's kind of like a tax-free savings account. Um, you can access you know, various uh, investment streams, whether it's a stocks and shares um, account through, there's so many platforms, whether it's Hargreaves, Lansdowne, Vanguard. Trade, there's all these platforms out there where you can, Vanguard, exactly. You can sign up, uh, fill in your details and then start investing money into the financial markets. You can invest in, if you don't know where to invest, you can put your money in an index fund, which basically tracks the market. Um, it follows the S&P 500, for example, 500 of the biggest companies in America. You invest across a basket of companies if you don't know which company to invest in specifically. If you know which company to invest in specifically, let's say you like Tesla, for example, you can open an account, let's say Free Trade or eToro, and you can buy Tesla stock on its own. Um, so there's all these different products. And if you're feeling extra risky, you can open an account on Coinbase or, B or Binance, so crypto platforms, and start investing in the cryptocurrency space. Um, but my advice to anyone listening, if you're unsure about how to start investing, just start reading um, up on, like, if you've got a term that you don't know, Google search it, read up on it. And there's so much content on YouTube to learn about all of this stuff. Um, so it's so easy these days to learn about these things and get investing. Do you have any book recommendations that you can plug uh, for this? Um, a book recommendation, not for investing, but for learning more about the city is called All You Need to Know About the City. Um, and it's by Jonathan Stokes, I think. And it's a 
very simple explanatory book on everything you need to know about the city if you want to break into that industry. In terms of investing, I don't have a book re recommendation per se, but I would just say um, there's a lot of YouTube channels um, who explain things in simple terms, whether you're interested in cryptocurrencies or financial markets. Um, just have a browse, you'll come across them. It probably is as simple as typing what is cryptocurrency or what is ISA. You'll probably come across someone that has a full suite of exactly. videos. Just just like yeah, just like you, if you were to type in what is a CV or what is Goldman Sachs or what is an internship. Exactly. Exactly. And also in the UK, money saving expert is pretty good. Very simple. Lots of articles um, online, money saving expert. I find that very helpful. One question I want to ask before we move on to your latest venture simply through working yep. in investment banking or working for these firms have you heard stories yep. of what it used to be like in the kind of wolf of wall street days have you heard any crazy stories from back in the day yeah so a lot of the seniors in the industry um, when i was there you know lived through that time pre-2008 right and that's when it was there's a lot less regulation bonuses were a lot bigger and the world was different. Um, post 2008 financial crisis, everything changed. But those days, yeah, it was kind of a bit more like what you see in Wolf of Wall Street. Um, there was a lot more bravado. There was a lot more. It was more male dominated. The industry It's very male dominated now. But there's a lot of work being done to help, you know, females get into more senior positions, diversity, etc. Um, so it kind of was like all, all the things you see about Wolf of Wall Street and all these typical ways that the industry is portrayed it was like that once upon a time but nowadays it's nothing like that yeah. love it mate so let's talk about simply your baby what is it yes simply is a platform that connects underserved young people with industry professionals to have video conversations like this and improve their chances of getting jobs in the industry um so it's basically free one-to-one -one video calls for young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. I love it. I'm going to yeah. plug the link below. I'm going to sign up. A few people at my work have signed up. I went on your website the other day and a friend from the local town was on it. So anyone can really sign up. Yeah, really, it's for everyone and it's yeah. helping everyone. What are your motivations exactly. as a founder for it? What do you hope to achieve? Yeah, so in it, the idea came from, so when I first left Goldman's and was doing CV Doctor, I was taking video calls and helping people with their careers, right? And then I realized quickly, this isn't scalable, it's limited to my time. However, I know there are hundreds of thousands of people out there who are working in the industry who would love to give their time back to those who need it most. So then I thought, all right, let me create this platform called Simply. After a year of learning how to build it without code, um, we got to where we are now um, and the platform is up live and running. The next stage, so what I wanna do is grow the numbers, get as many mentors or leaders on the platform, get as many learners on the platform as well. Um, and then essentially what I want to do is start placing learners into partner companies. So I want to start working with, you know, corporates across financial services, consulting, tech, etc. And because there's demand for this hard to reach talent, right? There's a lot of like, I believe talent is spread evenly right across the world, but opportunity isn't. And so it's all about matching that talent with the opportunity um, that these firms provide. So later on right now, it's you know, learner has a free video call with a leader. Essentially, what I want to do is help the learner get placed into a top company, for example. Brilliant, mate. Such a brilliant concept. So solving and serving mm. such a brilliant um, demographic of people. Tomorrow is, I believe, Social Mobility Awareness Day. And mm. what you said there kind of 
shines a light on how I would describe social mobility and I describe it as the amount of ease or friction between an individual and their access and awareness of opportunity. And I think simply as that gap simply makes it easier. So thank you for all your generous work. Oh, it's all good, man. I appreciate that. It's 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 needed. Um, I definitely could have used it when I was, you know, five, ten years ago. So now it's all about just doing my bit. This was a pleasure. I'm so glad we finally got round to doing it, mate. You're such a, a superstar and such a role model for so many. If people want to engage with your work and reach out and say hello or sign up for Simply or just come across your YouTube channel, where's best to find you, mate? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on the pod. Um, if you, the best places to catch me, obviously YouTube channel, just search Afzal Hussein. Um, and alternatively, I'm on Instagram. Um, so hit me up there and LinkedIn. Thanks, mate. It was a pleasure. Sweet. Take care. Bye.